You are listening to South by Southwest Sessions. Hi there. I'm Amanda Chicago-Lewis. I'm a journalist based in LA, and I've been covering legalization and the cannabis industry since 2013 for publications like Rolling Stone, Wired, GQ, and the New York Times. We're here today with Kat Packer, the first and so far only executive director of the Los Angeles Department of Cannabis Regulation. Kat, thanks for being here. Thank you, Amanda. Let's start with a little context for those who might need it. California voters legalized medical cannabis in 1996. The state legislature passed a law allowing nonprofit marijuana collectives, not businesses, collectives, in 2003, and by 2006, there were hundreds of weed stores in LA. By 2010, there were 2,000 pot shops here, making LA the biggest and most important cannabis market in the world. But technically, none of these businesses were legal. Even after voters passed a ballot initiative legalizing adult use cannabis in 2016, the city of LA was going to have to figure out on its own what to do with these 2,000 illegal marijuana dispensaries. Enter Kat Packer. Kat Packer was a young activist from Ohio who had been working in LA with the influential organization, the Drug Policy Alliance, when she caught the eye of city officials and was appointed to run the city's very first Department of Cannabis Regulation in 2017. She's held that role for the past three and a half years. Kat, do you agree that when you arrived on the job, do you agree that when you arrived on the job, cannabis in Los Angeles was a big old mess? Yes, uh, it was very much a mess in the city of Los Angeles. As you had previously described, uh, both the state of California and the city of Los Angeles did not have uh, a framework for regulation. And so uh, both the state and the city of Los Angeles and other jurisdictions uh, in the state of California had a big task on their hands after voters decided to legalize cannabis for adult use. Uh, I was tasked with building an agency, the Department of Cannabis Regulation, uh, from scratch, transitioning some of those operators that you had mentioned uh, previously, uh, and also trying to bring on new businesses for the first time with hundreds of new regulations both at the state and local level. And we were doing so simultaneously while attempting to acknowledge and address the harms of the drug war by way of establishing uh, what has increasingly been referred to as social equity programs. And so over the course of the last uh, three and a half years, uh, there have been lots of challenges and lots of lessons learned. So. All in all, Kat came on the job with just an easy, small, little task to take care of here. Um, and as you were saying, the conversation around legalizing cannabis has turned in recent years to what we call equity or social equity, which could be described as a form of reparations for the racially disparate outcomes of the war on drugs. Los Angeles, among several other places, has attempted to implement what's called a social equity program. Uh, at the same time, arguments about how to devise a social equity program have stalled legalization efforts in, among other places, New York. So, Kat, what do you think we've learned in Los Angeles about the nature of such a program that could be useful to other places now? 
I think there are many lessons learned uh, that I and other regulators, uh, those who are primarily tasked with developing and implementing these social equity programs have learned over uh, the last several years. And it's important to note that even uh, the first equity program in the nation, which was started in Oakland, California, is all but just a few years old. Uh, and so there is, uh, in some sense, relatively little data, uh, but there are lots of lessons learned. Uh, and I think the biggest lesson is that uh, we have to be proactive and intentional about our approach to equity. Uh, and really, we're behind the ball uh, if we wait until adult use legalization uh, to begin to have these conversations because uh, we not only have to make sure that we get the policy right, and that is critically important, but we also have to make sure we get the implementation of the policy right. Uh, and it's been the case here in the city of Los Angeles and in many of the other jurisdictions that have social equity programs across the country uh, that there is increasingly just not enough administrative support. Uh, there's not enough resources uh, to get these programs off the ground. And so a lot of the times these markets will start uh, before these critical programs are in place. Uh, and in communities, those who historically have been disproportionately impacted continue to get left behind. And so I, I think it starts with making sure that you have the right policy in place and there are many different considerations that jurisdictions have to make when they're establishing social equity programs, uh, from deciding who qualifies for social equity programs, largely social equity programs base their eligibility criteria based on harm indicators. Uh, so some of those harm indicators are if you are low income, if you have a prior California cannabis arrest or conviction, if you've lived in a community that's disproportionately impacted area, uh, but there's no general consensus on what even just the eligibility criteria is. And then uh, and in order to reduce barriers to entry into the cannabis market, equity programs seek to devise uh, several strategies and programs uh, like fee assistance or financial assistance or priority processing of uh, applications or education and technical support. Uh, but the reality is that all of these things should set the floor, not the ceiling, uh, for what equity programs could and should mean. Uh, and we, oft we also have to think increasingly about how we ensure equity uh, beyond licensing uh, in the cannabis industry. That is a critical and important piece. It's also just important to make sure that we have automatic expungement uh, provisions for community reinvestment where we're taking tax dollars uh, from cannabis tax revenue and reinvesting it uh, in the community. And then also just thinking comprehensively uh, about the ways that harms continue to linger uh, in the ways that cannabis consumers are treated differently uh, than, than other folks in society. All of those things, uh, if not thought about intentionally and proactively, uh, will continue to exist post-legalization. Right, so, you know, I wanna emphasize that legalization is already very complicated and that social equity programs are these ambitious social justice initiatives that, you know, as Kat just highlighted, can be uh, very troubled for a number of different reasons. I think timing, as Kat just said, right, most places legalize medical use before 
for recreational use. And we've seen in places a market set up under medical may be less likely to have a social equity program. And then all of the folks who are running that market get a first mover advantage that then is very difficult to undo once adult use and social equity uh, comes to play. We've seen that in Los Angeles. We've seen that in Chicago and in Illinois uh, more broadly. And then of course, this question of what are the qualifications that someone needs to have to be a social equity applicant? Just as a small example, the census and crime data measure Latino folks differently. So it's very hard to align those two types of measurements to figure out who's been disproportionately impacted. So in 2019, allegations of corruption actually halted the social equity licensing process in Los Angeles. Um, and a lot of the people who tried to get involved in the social equity process years ago are still throwing lots and lots of money at properties that they are supposed to uh, have under control in order to get licenses. Uh, and meanwhile, they haven't been able to open their businesses yet. So Kat, I've heard some people say that the attempt to implement an equity program in Los Angeles has completely backfired. Do you agree? No, I don't think that it's uh, backfired. I think that it's a work in progress. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, regulators who are tasked with implementing these programs are asked to uh, grade themselves on their effort. And I can say that we've made every effort uh, under our own to try and see these programs and to see these businesses uh, be successful. Uh, but it takes time. And uh, we're in the process of putting programming uh, for the very first time that seeks to rectify decades and decades of harm. Uh, I think that through our experience thus far, as, as I mentioned previously, there are definitely lessons learned and things we uh, wouldn't do again uh, should we have the opportunity. For example, uh, the City of Los Angeles initially acquired that applicants, social equity applicants, have property uh, before they submitted their application just to determine if they would uh, be eligible uh, to move forward in the application process. Uh, although that is something that our office uh, advocated uh, against, ultimately uh, City Council did pass a policy that required applicants uh, to hold on to property. And so we have a circumstance today uh, where applicants have been paying for rent uh, for over a year now during the application process, uh, and uh, for many of these businesses, it'll still be several months uh, before they receive their licenses. Uh, I think these are the types of lessons that uh, regulators have a responsibility to share with others uh, who are seeking to develop new programs uh, to, to move forward. Uh, but that's something that we don't have to and we won't replicate here in the city of Los Angeles. So the Department of Cannabis Regulation uh, and uh, my office recommended a series of comprehensive uh, amendments to the Cannabis Procedures Ordinance in the City of Los Angeles uh, in the summer of last year. And fortunately, every single one of those recommendations was adopted. And so now we no longer have uh, a policy where we require folks to have a property uh, up front, the next round of retail licenses that we make available, uh, we will identify those applicants not by a first-come, first-served process, uh, which was heavily criticized in the city of Los Angeles, uh, but by a lottery 
uh, and we will identify those social equity applicants by lottery and then give those applicants uh, up to a year to come back to the department uh, with a property and with a full business application. These are some of the ways that we can take lessons learned uh, and be proactive about using those lessons uh, in, in how we move forward. Another thing that we recommended that was adopted by the city council uh, here in the city of Los Angeles uh, was that we amended our policy so that only social equity applicants have access to new retail and new delivery licenses until January 1st of 2025. Uh, this is now being referred to uh, as license exclusivity. Uh, and we recognize even just by looking at the benefits that our existing medical marijuana dispensaries uh, have experienced by essentially having uh, you know, no competition in the market for the last uh, several years, how beneficial uh, that's been to our existing medical marijuana dispensaries, most of which have been uh, owned uh, predominantly uh, by uh, white men. And so by taking some of these lessons learned, uh, I think that folks uh, in the city of Los Angeles and folks who are participating in our program will over time uh, begin to see uh, the, the benefits associated with this program. Uh, but I acknowledge uh, that it hasn't been uh, the prettiest process uh, or experience, but I wouldn't discount uh, not only its intention, uh, but the potential uh, outcomes of the program as well. I also have to uh, acknowledge that we're at a point in time uh, in society where communities, and particularly communities of color, black and brown folks, uh, are very distrusting of government institutions. And so when uh, this idea and concept of social equity comes along, many communities can be skeptical uh, about what this means for them. Uh, and we have a responsibility as public servants to deliver on the promises uh, of equity and of cannabis policy reform uh, there's a lot of talk uh, out of various politicians uh, about the harms of the war on drugs uh, and about the need to rectify these things. Uh, but when it comes down to how we uh, establish our budgets, how we actually uh, write our, our laws and uh, the intention and effort that we put behind these programs, communities need to see that uh, at work. And uh, I know that there have been uh, concerns about corruption generally in the cannabis industry uh, and as it relates to, to social equity programs. Uh, and that's difficult to, their, their concerns are difficult to discount uh, when like in places like the city of Los Angeles, uh, we've had council members uh, who have been arrested uh, by the FBI and, and have been under investigation for corruption. And so it makes, uh, my job, uh, the job of regulators, even more difficult, but that means that we have to be increasingly thoughtful uh, and intentional uh, about how we engage with communities, keep stakeholders engaged in this process, but then also uh, make a real commitment uh, to follow through uh, and know that it may not come in year one, two, or three, uh, and that doesn't mean that we walk away uh, from uh, the program altogether. It means that we double down, uh, we collect data, 
Uh, we strategize about how we can improve these policies and we stay committed until we reach the outcomes uh, that we originally sought. Yeah, you know, Los Angeles has made a lot of mistakes and gone out on a limb, so other places don't have to. So it's a great example for other people and other states to understand what not to do. Um, I'm curious, you talked about policy changes that happened last year uh, in the cannabis program in Los Angeles, and I'm, I want to know what role did the George Floyd protests uh, in June of 2020 play in those changes? And I think more specifically, I'm wondering, as an activist turned bureaucrat, what advice do you have for people looking to affect change on a local level? So did you feel you had more leverage when you were outside of the room where it happens or inside of the room where it happens? And perhaps I should mention the third path here might be politician, right? Because you're not an elected official, you're an appointed bureaucrat. So is there a path that for young people or for people considering how to stay involved in the fight for racial justice uh, might offer the most power and influence? Yeah, I think that uh, for for me in particular, I I was a drug policy uh, reform advocate and activist with the Drug Policy Alliance prior to joining the city, and I often like to to say that I'm an agitator turned leader in this space. Uh, it wasn't me who was uh, in this position in this role. Uh, I would still be heavily engaged and highly critical. Uh, of what's going on in the city of Los Angeles. And I don't think that people should be, folks that are in these positions should be uh, scared of criticism. I think we have to welcome it uh, because I found uh, that that's largely where progress uh, is made is when we can think critically uh, about our, our policies uh, and their impacts. And that's the whole idea uh, behind this concept of these social equity programs is to recognize uh, the impact that past policies have had on communities. Uh, we, we can't be naive to think that uh, our current or future policies won't have uh, impacts as well. And I think that uh, there's often a, an inside and an outside game uh, that has to uh, be engaged in order to see victories and to see successes. Uh, folks who work in the uh, advocacy space, particularly the policy advocacy space, will know that they may run a bill year after year after year uh, before it finally uh, gets in, uh, passed. Uh, and then folks have to stay at the table to make sure uh, that it's implemented properly. Uh, but in terms of the death of George Floyd and the uh, protests uh, for uh, racial injustice that have happened uh, throughout the United States, uh, truth be told, my office, my team had been working on uh, these amendments for uh, months uh, because we recognized that historically we had tried to do uh, this piecemeal uh, process to reform some of our, our policies and sometimes we were uh, unsuccessful in even just moving uh, things piece by piece. Uh, but I think that uh, and I went back to my team and I said, you know, I don't necessarily know if city council is going to be receptive uh, to every single policy recommendation that we make, uh, but let's try and approach it comprehensively. Let's try and look at the licensing program. Let's look at the social equity program. Let's try and find a way to make it more streamlined to uh, in, improve the processes and to strengthen uh, different provisions of the social equity program. 
and then when all of the protests uh, around the death of George Floyd happened, I think that that uh, allowed uh, city council to be more receptive to adopting the policies, but the policies themselves uh, had to have been written uh, ahead of time. But I, I definitely think that we were able to uh, essentially just leverage the moment uh, that we were in. And I think that uh, that moment hasn't gone away. Uh, we have to recognize that uh, there is still an immediate uh, and urgent need for cannabis policy reform at every single level of government. Uh, harms continue uh, to persist and continue to be disproportionately impactful to communities of color. Uh, even in states that have legalized, uh, we will see folks continue, black and brown folks continue to be arrested uh, at higher rates. And so we have to have this conversation about how at the individual, uh, institutional and systemic level uh, that we can root out uh, these causes uh, of, of, of racism and, and how they persist uh, in, in everyday life and in our policies and programs. But I would encourage uh, young people, young activists, young advocates, uh, when you recognize, when you feel something uh, in your gut that just doesn't feel right, if you feel as though you're being called uh, into a particular uh, space for reform or advocacy, and uh, if an opportunity presents itself, or if you have the opportunity to create uh, an opportunity uh, to join uh, local, state, or uh, federal government and be a part of the uh, change that you'd like to seek, uh, don't run away from those opportunities. I think that uh, these institutions I've learned are largely just the people uh, who work for them and who manage them. And to the extent that we can pull more people uh, into government uh, that recognize the harms uh, that government uh, can work proactively to ensure that we identify disparities, we identify inequities, and are committed to establishing policies and programs that target uh, those inequities directly uh, we will be in a much better position uh, in the future. Yeah, right. And so in Los Angeles, uh, before the George Floyd protests, we were going to see a hundred new dispensaries from social equity applicants uh, and the policy changes that Kat was able to push through uh, with her team after the protests means that now we're going to see 200 dispensaries from social equity applicants. However, just a status check, there's still about a thousand dispensaries total in Los Angeles. Currently, only about 185 of those are legal. Are legal. So we're talking about maybe one in five storefront marijuana stores in Los Angeles are legal. The rest are not. Pat, when will more become legal? Yeah, so the city of Los Angeles, when it passed its policy back in the summer of last year, it increased the number of retail licenses that would be made available to social equity applicants, as you mentioned, from 100 to 200 applicants. Uh, in December of last year, the department finalized its process of identifying who those 200 applicants are, and those applicants are moving through what we call locally the temporary approval process. 
which requires them to uh, get licenses from the state, uh, pass inspections locally, uh, they may have to go through an inspection with the fire department or the Department of Building and Safety. Uh, but those businesses are progressing through the temporary approval process. Uh, and I'm hopeful uh, that by the summer, uh, at least 50 of those businesses uh, would become operational. Uh, but because each business is kind of moving at its own pace, depending on uh, the quality of the application that they're submitting, whether or not they need to go through uh, maybe like a business relocation, um, progressing through the inspection process, the state licensing process, uh, it's difficult for me to specify a specific timeline, but based on what I'm seeing, I'm imagining that at least a quarter uh, of those businesses uh, who participated in what we call phase three retail round one uh, will be able to receive uh, authorization in the next several months. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there are still many uh, businesses in the city of Los Angeles that are not licensed. Uh, businesses that are not licensed by the city of Los Angeles are illegal, uh, both at the uh, local and state level. Uh, and I would encourage consumers uh, to make sure that they are purchasing from licensed operators rather than unlicensed operators. Uh, licensed operators are required to follow uh, certain public health and health uh, public health and safety standards to make sure that the cannabis that you're purchasing is what it claims uh, to be uh, and doesn't have things like uh, unsafe levels of pesticides uh, or heavy metals, etc. But we do have uh, a, a we still have a large unlicensed uh, market in the city of Los Angeles, uh, and we're working on various strategies. Uh, across different city agencies to develop and administer a new enforcement strategy uh, that seeks to rid ourselves of some of those old uh, criminal enforcement tools because what we've seen is that uh, they just continue to replicate harm and they don't actually do anything uh, to decrease the size of the unlicensed market. Right, whereas now we're seeing a lot of raids from LAPD and an aggressive policy on behalf of the uh, city attorney's office, especially arresting low-level workers at cannabis dispensaries who maybe are not even aware they're working for an illicit business. We, we have a long ways to go uh, here in the city of Los Angeles. We're just getting started uh, and we're committed to making sure that our licensing, social equity programs, enforcement uh, efforts, uh, that we continue to move in a direction where we're being more responsible uh, and more equitable. Uh, uh, consumers uh, have a role to play in choosing to buy uh, from legal uh, operators and also those that are equity owned. Uh, regulators and governments have a huge role to play in creating a framework that allows folks to do just that. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Amanda. Always enjoy speaking with you.